0: Good morning. It's great to see all of you. Good morning to those of you joining us online. I just pray that God moves today mightily in our midst. I was 23 years old, been working at 3M for about six months, and I was asked to do this laminator project, tabletop laminator. It had about 50 drawings to this little project, and uh, it was the first one of that magnitude that I was doing. And I remember I was a little bit nervous about it, to make. I wanted it to work and all that. So I asked a senior engineer, actually, it was a senior specialist would you check these drawings over for me and make sure I haven't done anything that's really dumb so I don't have to remake parts or do something like that. And so his name was Earl, he was a, a specialist and he took the drawings from me and checked them over. And then about three days later, uh, Earl came out with my assembly drawing in his hands. Now, back in that time, we worked in an open concept. All, uh, there was like 50 engineers sitting in a big open space, okay? Kind of a leave it to beaver kind of thing, you know, anyway. I, no, nobody knows what I'm talking about there, do you? Anyway, but anyway, um. so he comes out and he actually jumps up top of a desk with my assembly drawing. He had painted it red. And he said, I can't believe all the mistakes you have. He's shaking it around. He said, this will never work. And, and I flushed turned red. I thought, oh man, it must be just terrible. I'm turning red and he's just going on and on and on, ranting and raving. And everybody's laughing at me. This went on for about 15 minutes, right? And so he gets done with this little demonstration and quietly comes over to me and says, looks good. You have a couple of dimension mistakes. You just need to correct. <laughs> what Earl was doing to me, and I found that out, was for putting you in a place. You ever been put in your place? He, he believed in this hierarchy in the engineering world. He was asbestos and I was a green new engineer. And so he put me in my place. You ever been put in your place like that? Today as we look at uh, uh, teachings of, of John in First John, he's going to put us in our place in a good way, in a positive way. You ever been put in your place in a good way? Do you know what your talents are? Do you know what your giftingness? Do you know what God's called you to do? Do you understand how you can contribute in, in, a, in a positive way to the kingdom of God? Over the last few weeks, um, I've been on this kick of reading some older works of Christianity, and I've been reading City of God uh, by the early church Father Augustine. And anyway, um, he was asked to respond to the accusation in in that Roman culture that was something like this before Christianity came on the scene and became the... uh, You know, faith of the of the empire. We were doing really well. Now that Christianity has come on the scene, we're suffering defeats, and some things are unraveling. And they were blaming Christianity. And so Augustine was asked to address that question. And he wrote this book, City of God. It's a monster-long read with really small print. It's going to take me, I think, five months to read this thing. I read a lot, you know, but you can only read so much because there's so much in there. And what I'm finding in the book is that so much of our Western culture is based on some of his thoughts. It's just amazing to kind of read through it. And one of the patterns I'm seeing is that Augustine is constantly putting the, the issues and the people into their proper perspective, into their place. And he essentially says at one point, that old system that was before Christianity was stupid. It was crazy complex. We had a God for everything. They didn't do anything. They never responded. To believe in such things is delusional and hopeless. And he said, um, basically, um, they're fairy tales. So he's saying this to the people that want to go back to the old gods, right? And he said, Look at how different life is now when we serve the one true God. And basically, what he's doing is, is saying, Know your place as a Christ follower. Know who God is. Know what he's about. Know what isn't true. And so I have an opening question for you to consider today Do you know your place? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know the gifts and talents that he's given you? Do you understand how to hit the sweet spot uh, by following hard after God? Uh, you know, when I ask the question, do you know your place? We all have done this in various ways in our life. I'm a second born. I know my place in my family. My brother got the attention. My sister got all the attention. He's little. I got no attention. Amen. Poor me, right? Middle born. Is anybody middle born here? Aren't you the neglected one in your family? Amen, right? So eh, nobody really cares. But at any rate, um, so if you're a second stringer on a basketball team, your place is where? On the bench. You know your place, right? If you get called to go in the game, you get probably really nervous. Do you know um, if you're athletic or not? How many think you're athletic? Anybody think you're athletic? in Sure. Some, nobody said, I can't do that. That's, that's not being humble. But you know, some people are athletic. Some people, they're not athletic. Amen. Some people are mechanical. They can figure some things out. Some people, what's a screwdriver? What's a plier? They can't figure anything out. We should have Christ follower as part of our identity. We should know who we are in Christ. And this morning, that's where we're going to go in our first John series. Um, John brings us to, to knowing our place spiritually. Pastor Aaron talked about this really a lot last week. I'm going to kind of use what he talked about last week. It's kind of getting us thinking on knowing our place and then dive into um, some new thoughts from First John this morning. But what we're going to look at this morning is not negative at all. It's very positive. It's a positive knowing your place kind of thing. It's similar to what Augustine was doing for the early church, to, for them to understand who God was and how he works in cultures and how he works in people's lives. So First John is corrective teaching. So much of it is addressing issues that were going on in his day that were causing problems. And I mentioned this before, the Gnostics were kind of being problematic for the church. They were saying Jesus basically is a phantom. He didn't really appear bodily form. He wasn't resurrected bodily. These are very fundamental problems uh, that that they were creating. And they said, we're smart, and we're, we got the secret knowledge, and if you're going to know spirituality, you've got to come to us. And they were really messing up um, the Christian movement. And in response to this John is teaching us about identity in Jesus Christ. So we know who we are. I'm going to review this. Pastor Aaron did this last week. I'm going to do it again. If some of this is redundant, good. Because we need to know some of this stuff like really well. So here's what John's teaching us about identity. In Jesus' light, walk in light. Walk according to his ways. That's review point number one. Two, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth's not in us. In other words, we're delusional. Sin is the problem of humanity. We need to know that. That's part of understanding our identity in Christ. Three, because we have sinned, that is, the human race, we are something less than we're meant to be. We've lost glory. We suffered a glory loss. And Jesus, we gained grace. And now we're empowered to live. This life in Christ, experiencing the power of Jesus at work in us, and we're to experience this ever-increasing kind of glory. See, we're not just called to salvation. We're called to become what we're meant to become in Christ. And that part of that is experiencing an ever-increasing glory uh, kind of experience. Um, four, in Christ, we're declared righteous uh, by grace. And, and so, you know, you're saved uh, by grace through faith is not of yourselves, is a gift of God, less than any man should boast. So, when we come to Christ, we're declared righteous, right? There's you, you nothing you can do. You're saved. Amen, right? You add nothing to it. Your works don't make anything right. It, but, get this when you're saved, you're filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. You're declared righteous, but you're supposed to demonstrate righteous, righteousness. You're supposed to be one that lives out righteousness because now you're equipped to do that by Christ and by the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The follower of God, this is point number five. Not that you care. I'm just doing that to help myself know where I'm going. But if review point number five is this, and this is what Aaron was getting at here a couple of weeks ago. You know what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to abide in him. You're going to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your life's going to be characterized by obedience, not because you have to, because you want to. He or she in Christ will abide in Christ. And then, last week we begin to tickle the subject that I'm going to jump into today. Uh, we're to know our place in God. Um, we're to understand um, who we are. And, and partly what uh, uh, John does here as we uh, get into First John today, is he tells us who we are in Christ in, in verses 12 through 14. That's what Aaron ca- talked about last week. I'm gonna pick it up there. So we're gonna reread First John 2, verses 12 through 14. Um, listen to the scripture. I'm writing you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, as I said, Aaron talked on these last week, so I'm not going to go there too much. But I just want you to understand, this is an identification of your place in Christ. That's what's going on here. John's been writing all this hard stuff to us and it's like he takes a break. This is poetic, it's lyrical, it's different kind of cadence to the reading. It it just kind of catches your your attention. It's like a poem in the middle of a letter. Now, if I was writing you a letter and all of a sudden you saw a poem in the middle of my letter, just a poem, you'd go, what, right? Especially my poem because it would be horrendous. But you'd go, what is he, why are you writing a poem? Partly it gets your attention. Anybody watch the Olympics? Some of you do. Ice skating, it's on all the time, right? They, 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 on purpose, make the ice skaters change the music. You know why? Because it's boring. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Some of you like ice skating. I'm sorry. I like to ice skate. So it, anyway, but, but they change it on purpose and it kind of keeps you captivated. It kind of, there's a change of tempo. There's a change of the routine a little bit and it kind of draws you back into uh, the performance. Well, there's a change here of cadence and pace because it captures our interests. And, and John shares some incredibly important thoughts here about our place in Christ. Two times in the sequence, there's this children, father, young men. Children, father, young men. And there's a couple theories to why this is done. First of all, John's intention is just to talk to the whole congregation. So he's just doing it in this kind of terminology. Uh, The second one I like the most is this. John was addressing his congregation and his readers from the viewpoint of spiritual age. novice in the faith children and to those who are vigorous in the faith, strong and overcomers, referred to as, as kind of the father figures here. Um, let me talk to you on this, it's really interesting. So the first thing he says is, dear children, that, that first reference to dear children comes from the Greek word uh, technia, and uh, it means congregation of believers. So he says, dear children, it's like me calling you dear children of Christ. He's doing a general kind of salutation and greeting. Um, um, the second reference to dear children is a little different. It's from a different Greek word, from the Greek word "apadia," uh, which means dear immature ones, dear little ones in, in faith. Yeah, and so um, let's, let's begin here by giving you a point, but then we're going to get to the differences, some of the nuances of, of this, this scripture. Uh, listen to this. As a new covenant, born again in Christ's person, you're just to know your place, okay? So I'm going to talk about that. And, and John describes this for us by, by some of the way he, he does this little uh, labeling here. So, the dear children, the technia, the first reference to the whole congregation, he says, here's what's incredibly important for you to know your place, and it's this. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, Jesus So he says, listen, congregation, listen, my beloved in Jesus, listen, my dear children, your sins are forgiven. All right, he's talking to the whole congregation here. Christ is taking care of the sin problem. And as a Christ follower, if I'm going to know my place, if I'm going to have my identity established in Jesus Christ, I got to know that my what? Sins are forgiven. So what we're going to do here is just take a moment and pray. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to say blank. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to fill in the blank, amen, in your mind. That way you can participate with me in this prayer and not just listen to what I'm saying. It's a super short moment, but I'm going to just say, Father, thank you that I'm forgiven. I thank you specifically for forgiving me for blank, what comes to your mind. Lift it up to Christ right now, okay? So would you bow your heads? Let's do this. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we're all forgiven in here in Jesus Christ, I thank you that I'm specifically forgiven for blank. We know that in Jesus, these sins are gone as far as the east is to the west. Praise be to your name. Amen. So knowing your place begins by knowing you're a forgiven person and you're the recipient of God's forgiveness. To Jesus Christ. Now remember, John is establishing identity here for us. Amen? He's saying you've got to know your place. You've got to know who you are. Now let's talk about what John says to those who are just beginning to understand what they have in Christ. I'm going to go to the second reference of, of dear children. And as I said, it's a different Greek uh, word there. And, and, and um, he's saying, now to you who are uh, immature or just beginning this process, you know God as your father. That's a huge concept for us as believers. I remember when I first discovered that I knew God as Father. So this is point number two, you know God as Father through the gospel, life and message of Jesus Christ. Um, This is one of the greatest revelations I ever experienced in my journey of faith, was when I began to understand God as my Father. That there's this relational dynamic to this. Now, I'm talking about this in a positive sense. Because if you haven't had a good earthly father figure here, sometimes you struggle with this concept. But let's put all that aside and let's look at this as the ideal. God is our father. He loves us perfectly. He wants relationship with us. And think about how fathers who are healthy feel about their kids. They love them, Right? And I love how the King James version of the Bible refers to followers of Christ. They're called beloved there all the time. Every now and then I slip into that and call you beloved. We're beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a, a heavenly father that loves us. Um, so let's move on. So, so to the whole congregation, your sins are forgiven. Amen, right? Your are steps. To the once just beginning of faith, he says, listen, you God's your father. Amen. It's a relationship. So we're seeing our identity being established here. Um, I'm going to move along quickly now. Uh, He says to to fathers twice, to those who are mature twice, he says this. Maturity means you're experiencing an ever-increasing awareness of the nature and power of Jesus, basically. He says, the fathers, he says, you know what's up. You who have been in the faith for a while, you know what's going on. You're experiencing an ever-increasing awareness of the nature and the power of Jesus Christ. That's maturity. That's what it's supposed to look like. So when we talk about maturity in, in our faith, it's not that I I know some obscure Bible verse or or that. No, maturity in Christ means I'm experiencing an ever-increasing awareness of the nature and the power of Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. And John says to the mature, there you go. And then he says, to those of you who are young, young men, and Aaron talked on this so well last week, I'm not really gonna talk on this one, but this is point D, the word of God lives in you and you overcome the evil one. You're overcoming, the, you know what it means to overcome the evil one, just remember that. That's what strength means and that's what it looks like to be strong in the Lord. Um, you know what he's doing for us here? Is he, he's, he's establishing our position in Christ. But he's saying to you and I, your life is leveraged. Are you taken advantage of that leverage? Do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? Now I don't know about you, I love leverage. I think in pictures. Anybody think in pictures in here? I don't think in words. Whenever I'm reading or doing something, I just get all kinds of imagery. That's kind of who I am as a person. So I think in pictures, amen? So I want to give you a picture today of what it means to be leveraged. A while back, I was doing a little bit of work on uh, our place up north, and I had to do some gas repiping, uh, natural gas, okay? And um, so I had to take apart some pipe that was like, 35 years old and replace it. I was really nervous about this because when you start pulling this pipe apart, guess what you don't have in that house? Nothing that runs on gas, like your furnace. Amen? So I thought, this has got to work. i got to be able to pull it apart. i got to be able to put it back together again. I don't know how easy this pipe will fall apart. So you know what I did? I did what any good man does. Amen? I went out and bought a big honking tool, a pipe wrench, right? And I said, I want some mechanical advantage here. Now, I don't know if you know how torque works. Like, I put this in the pipe and I want torque. Torque is a product of the length times the force. So if I get the long thing put here, I can crank on it better, right? You all understand that, right? This is a great rant, isn't it? Look at this thing. I, I like to just look at it. It's <laughs> cast. It's... It's pretty, it weighs about 20 pounds. It's heavy. I thought, this will take that pipe apart. This will give me mechanical advantage. I will defeat that pipe. You ever feel that way, men? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. This is you against that machine, amen? And you want to win. You want to come out victorious. And you see, that means a good wrench, amen? Some of you aren't getting into this like I am. I work on my cars all the time, so I justify buying really good tools, because I'm saving us all kinds of money, which I spend on my tools. And I like big tools, huh? you know. And so I put this thing on that pipe, and I'm thinking, please don't break pipe. Now I realize I have a big enough wrench to break the pipe, you know. So I put it on there, literally put it on there, and I push like this. And it comes loose. I said, well, that was easy. <laughs> I had it off in like 30 seconds. I thought, should I have bought this big wrench? Then after all, not. Anyway, but I love this wrench. It's like one of my favorite things just to kind of carry around. Anyway, put that in your tool pouch, right? Carry that thing. This is the picture. This is the picture I get here from what we just read in First John. Man. And I, I had seen that when Aaron was preaching last week. And it almost brought tears to my eyes. We are so leveraged in Jesus Christ. Do we understand our position? We're forgiven. Sins are gone. We have a father relationship with God, right? We're overcoming the evil one in Jesus Christ. And, and, And we're maturing by just, you know, growing in our relationship with God. We are positioned to do well in him if we'll take the challenge up. to to take on that position, which brings us to this challenge uh, statement. Will you leverage your life knowing your place then? Will you just live as one who's established in Jesus Christ? So now we're done with the introduction. Let's head back uh, to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read the scripture for this morning. So we talked about knowing our place in Christ thus far. Now we're going to talk about know where your place is not where you don't belong, okay? So here we go. I'm going to read 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Listen to this scripture. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So here's a place we do not belong. As a new covenant person, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, your place is not in the world. Your place is not in the world. The natural question becomes, what's the world? I like to state it this way. What in the world is the world? So let's define world here. This is really important to know what this terminology means. World here means this the present world order or system of life in its condition of self-reliance and independence from God, along with its apostate beliefs, values, ethics, attitudes, and practices. Now, in its crasser form, it's marked by selfishness, by greed, by power lust, by ambition, by violence, by self-glory, and other vices which reflect a Man-centered view of life. Now, a couple weeks ago, um, we're talking on the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. I, I, I made this point that the serpent convinced Adam and Eve to seek wisdom and goodness outside of God. That's worldly, okay? That's a that's succumbing to a world view of things. All right. Are you getting what this means? So when, we, when I say do not be of this world, this is what we're talking about. Amen? We can't be under a system of thinking that's independent from God, that denies God, that thinks that we can do, you know, and, and seek good and, and do okay outside of God. So here's the problem. Here's the problem with this. The problem is you cannot love the world and, and God because they're mutually exclusive. They're at odds with each other. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems in your life. You cannot be in the world and of the world if you're going to be thriving as a Christ follower. If you try to accommodate the world, make friends with it, so to speak, you know what's going to happen, right? You're going to feel a tension. You're going to feel a battle within that's going on because the two don't get along. And a lot of people don't understand that's their problem. Even Christ followers. There's too much accommodation of the world going on and it causes all this kind of tension and and strife internally. I've I've seen so many people making steps towards Jesus. You know, they're they're leaving the system of the world, this, this independent, you know, from God kind of existence and they start making steps towards God. And then there's a spiritual battle going on for their heart between evil and good. And they don't understand the nature of the beast that's going on here and the tension and the awkwardness and the strife becomes so great that they go back over here because it goes away. And that's so sad. They just succumb to the world. And it's a place of strife and eternal damnation. Amen? And, and, and but they don't know the nature of all the battle. There are two voices that cry for our allegiance, brothers and sisters. Amen? God, Satan, and they're at war with one another. Um, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus said, You've got to enter through me, There's, it's, it's narrow. And you find life. But broad, wide is destruction. The ways of the world are wide. And most people are going to succumb t- to it. And, and in our first John reading this morning, John talked about how we succumb uh, to the ways of this world. And how it takes us um, and, and, and destroys our lives. So I want to talk about three ways that the world tempts us, okay? And uh, how it entices us and tries to draw us into its, its way of doing things. First of all, uh, there is well, there's a triad of ways. There's three ways. Um, let's talk about the first one. It's called lust of the flesh. Now, what this means is is that the material world and all that is the dominant thing in my life. And so, a person that's succumbing to the lust of the flesh is letting their physical appetites and the physical world uh, dominate uh, them. When the serpent in the garden tempted Eve with the fruit. She looked at the fruit and decided she knew better than God and thought, well, this fruit is what? Good for food. That's lust of the flesh. It's good for food. My question is this. How'd she know that? She'd never eaten it before. It could have tasted like crud, right? She didn't know. She just assumed it would be good. Now, here's the problem. As a Christ follower, here's how this is supposed to work. I'm supposed to have the Holy Spirit over all my life. And the Holy Spirit is doing a work in my soul, my mind, my will, and my emotions of transformation. I'm becoming a holy person set apart to Jesus Christ. My soul's being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Then my body, my body is under uh, under the governorship of the Holy Spirit too, and is coming into conformance, into obedience to the things of Christ. So my body's subjected to my soul, which is subjected to the Holy Spirit. Amen? You see the order of that? My body isn't driving me and telling me what to do. But my, but my, my soul is under the jurisdiction of, of the Holy Spirit. And that's in control of me as a person. Amen? Right? So lust of the flesh turns that all upside down. All of a sudden now my body and its impulses are in control. They're determining what I do. You look at the world today. This is going on a lot more than we think. My body det- determines what I do and what I go after. And my soul is subjected to my body's sin And then there really is no place for the person of the Holy Spirit at all. It just turns everything upside upside down. So let's move on to the second identified area here that entices us into this worldly system of thought, lust of the eyes. This usually is taking a sexual kind of temptation, but boy, it means so much more than that. It's captivated by the visual and by imagery. Let's go back to Eve and the first temptation the fruit. Um, I want you to just to think about this because I find this whole little exchange with Eve in the serpent bazaar. Eve thought the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. Now, some versions of the Bible state it this way. She saw it as a delight to the eyes. So, <laughs> I want you to think about this with me, okay? You all right with thinking out of the box a little bit? Because if you're not, you're going to go there whether you want to or not. So Eve is standing there naked, her husband, Adam, is standing there naked. And they're looking at fruit and thinking, this is the light to the eye. Hmm, that must have been some fruit, eh, amen? What's going on here, you know? I mean, that's just kind of how this stuff works. It doesn't necessarily make sense, but somehow it captivates us. Our culture tempts with lust of the eyes all the time. It might be Victoria's Secret in the shopping mall. I know personally when I walk in a shopping mall, I just don't look at that stuff. It's just not very edifying. Amen? 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 Amen. It is not very edifying and your best, best approach is just to look away. Amen? 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 Man, you guys are hard. You're a hard crowd. <laughs> okay, let's move on here. Uh, I, I personally, I want a beautiful yard. I don't know why I want that. I think I bought into the advertisements. For some reason, I hate dandelions. I don't know what they've ever done to me, but they can't be in my yard, they wreck my yard. Anybody there with me? I have no idea why dandelions are so bad. Why are they so bad? Somebody's telling me dandelions are bad, so I spend an inappropriate amount of time killing dandelions. I just be think about that. Why do I hate dandelions so much? Because I want a beautiful yard, because someone told me that's a beautiful yard. Isn't that a little bit of lust of the eyes? How about cars? I like cars. Anybody else like cars? You wouldn't know it by the ones that I own. Because I haven't given in to the lust of my eyes. I was seeing uh, my, my, my son-in-law was buying a car for his wife, uh, a hybrid RAV4, they were sitting at the dealership, and I said, oh, look at that Dodge Charger in the background. It's orange with a black striped eye. I said, "Woo!" Because he like that car. I said, I love that car, amen? That's a car! Hopefully, they didn't wreck it by putting an electric motor in it. That's what I said. It's meant to have a motor in it, amen? Come on now. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Come on! But that's, in a sense, how our culture appeals to us, too. I mean, it is a good-looking car. I have to admit that. But those are other those ways that we're, we're tantalized and enticed and—, and clothes and food and on and on. We could go here. You get what I'm saying. And John John says that's the way the world gets us into its way of thinking is by pulling us in visually. And then lastly, it's pride of life. The pride of life. This describes a person who glorifies in himself or herself, in his or her uh, possessions. One commentary said this, it is a person who takes pride in his own non-existent importance. That's kind of tough, isn't it? The pride of life rears his ugly head when some kind of status symbol is more important to us than, than the Lord God, then you know, if that's happening, that you probably have a pride of life thing going on in you. One commentary said it this way. I'm reading the commentaries because I don't want to say it because it's so harsh. So I'll let the commentary say how harsh it is, okay? It says this. When I define myself to others in terms of my honorary degrees, the reputation, of the organization I serve, my annual income, the size of my library my expensive house or car. By doing this, I misrepresent the truth and in my boasting show myself to be only a pompous fool who has deceived no one. Then I succumb to what John calls the pride of life. In the case of the original temptation, Eve thought the forbidden fruit would be desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she thought, at that moment, I know better than God. I can discover wisdom and goodness outside of God's governance. And that's the pride of life. Is that not still a big problem with the human condition today? Isn't that most of humanity? Trying to find good and wisdom outside the governance of God. Now, some of you may say, and I think this way, well, good things happen in people's lives and they make good discoveries even if they're not a Christ follower. But I begin to think on that. And I just read through Jeremiah and Isaiah, uh, some nice light reading in the Bible. But at any rate, In both those prophetic books, I found this fascinating. They both said, who gives the clay its form? Does not the potter give the clay its form? And then over in the New Testament, it's stated this way. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. So even for those who do not know God, God still gives the clay the form. He still gives them the gift. They're just not acknowledging it. And so every good thing comes from God above, even if it's not acknowledged. So we got to understand this kind of dynamic. Um, Let's move on, okay? i got to finish up. Uh, Here's a watch out for you. You are in the wrong place, a place of sin, when you succumb to the way the world works. We just talked about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And, And John concludes by saying, The world and its desires are passing away. But a man who does the will of God lives forever. So I want to bring us to a quick conclusion here. And I think you have a a choice. It's your choice. Will you give in to the temptations of this world? And they're really enticing. Aren't they? I'm, I'm sort of serious when I say some of this. There's not a tool I walk by that I don't think I need. I have to say I don't need that tool. Right? Anybody relate to me on that? If you're a guy? Maybe for women, I don't know. I would say I have a clothes problem, but evidently, by the way I dress, you know I don't have that issue. So some some women, they've got to buy a new outfit all the time or a car. Some people I know have to have a new car every two years. Why? Why? Why are these things directing our lives and and why are they dominating our lives? So, will we get into the temptation of this world, and they're really enticing, I have to admit, I looked at that Dodge Charger and I wanted it Bad. Then I thought, well, well, I don't need it, but I still want it. You follow what I'm saying? That's that's temptation. Even though this world is temporary and passing away, that's putting yourself in the wrong place. Or will you abide in Christ and experience Him forever, which puts you in the right place? So we're going to prepare for communion now. Um, I want you to do the, uh, this preparation in light of some of the things that were shared today. One, do you know your place? Do you understand your sins are forgiven? Do you know God is Father? Do you know that you're overcoming in Jesus Christ? Do you know that maturity means this ever-increasing relational dynamic going on with God? Do you know your place? Are you serving the kingdom hard? At home, at work, wherever you find yourself, are you serving the kingdom of God hard? Do you know you don't fit in the world, amen? You just don't fit into that system of thinking. Don't try to accommodate it. Be wise. You're in the world, but don't be of the world. Amen? Live there, but live there entirely differently. Amen? Know your place is not there. Your place is with the things of God.